Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk first today with the author of a new book about Zingermans, the popular Ann Arbor Deli that has grown into a global food community over its 40 years. Then we're going to talk about the Republican Party here in Michigan, its rightward turn, and what that might mean for elections coming up in November. Is the party in jeopardy of becoming irrelevant from an electoral standpoint? That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So, if you live in Ann Arbor or went to school there or are a visitor there frequently, you certainly know about Zingerman's, the deli just outside of downtown that attracts so, so many people all of the time for its great sandwiches and salads and all the other wonderful food uh, that they make there. But not everybody knows that Zingerman's has kind of expanded its footprint and influence far beyond that restaurant itself. It's become a mega business, really, and a cultural force building a global food community out of that small restaurant. It operates a dozen businesses, including a large mail order operation, a bakery, restaurants, and more. It has become nothing short of an icon here in Southeast Michigan. And again, if you ever go to Ann Arbor or if you live there or go to school there, certainly you are familiar with the long lines waiting to get inside. Zingerman's is now 40 years old, and on the show, we've decided to do something we rarely do, which is talk about how a specific business did so well for so long and grew into such a phenomenon. How did Zingerman's build an interesting and collaborative culture and spread its influence globally, much further, that is, than anyone probably ever anticipated? There are other broader questions, too. How did businesses make it through after the COVID pandemic actually hit and absolutely changed the way that we do all kinds of things? What allowed them to persevere when money was tight and people were stuck in their homes? What was in the secret sauce for those who came out of the pandemic really strong? A new book called Satisfaction Guaranteed by Mickey Maynard, explores the ins and outs of Zingerman's, and we've got her here with us on the show today to talk about it. Mickey, welcome back to Detroit Hi, today. Steven. Yeah, it's great, great to have you. Great to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. So, as I said, Zingerman's started out as a pretty small business, just a deli on a corner in Ann Arbor. I can remember as a student in the late 1980s and early 90s in uh, Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, that it was a pretty 
small place. I mean, it was it was a wonderful place and had great food. Uh, it was not the enterprise that it is today. So let's talk about how it started out small and grew to be such a huge success. Sure. So the two co-founders of Zingerman's are Ari Weinswag, who people probably recognize from going in the deli, going in the other businesses in Ann Arbor, and Paul Saginaw, who actually is from Detroit. Ari grew up in Chicago, and they met in Ann Arbor. They were not college roommates, but Paul was managing a restaurant, and Ari applied for a job. And as they got to know each other, they both agreed that Ann Arbor could support a Jewish deli. Um, now, Detroit had Jewish delis. When we were kids, we would come downtown to Hudson's, and the Broadway deli was behind Hudson's, and we would take home a bag of bagels mm-hmm. or some, you know, some things to eat. And then, obviously, there's delis in the northern suburbs. But Ann Arbor really didn't have one. We had the blue front where actually bagels were trucked in from Detroit once a week. But if you wanted anything like corned beef or pastrami, you kind of had to get it at the grocery store. So they figured that the university had a sizable Jewish population of students. There was a Jewish community in Ann Arbor, and they thought people would appreciate really good quality Jewish food. So the two of them, with a legacy from Ari's grandmother and a second mortgage on Paul's house, got together in 1982 and took over a little brick building and opened Zingerman's Deli. And that's that's kind of the founding of it, this belief that the community would support a Jewish deli. Yeah. And, of course, today it is many more things than just that small Jewish deli. How do they grow into what Zingerman's is? And was there a plan, I suppose, to become uh, this kind of global food community that it is today? There was never a plan at the beginning for that. And I don't know if people know the name Cy Ginsburg, but Cy Ginsburg, who's known for his corned beef, his deli, his activities at Eastern Market, he was one of the ad- advisors to Ari and Paul. And so he helped them learn how to make corned beef. And then everybody at Zingerman's was driving to Royal Oak to get bread. And they realized that, you know, we can't do this on a sustainable basis We need to think about baking our own bread. And that was the first business that they opened beyond the deli was what's called the bakehouse because, you know, they're making multiple trips a day to get rye bread. And they thought, let's make it ourselves. And then another thing that they needed was cream cheese. And they decided instead of getting commercial cream cheese, which has a lot of stuff in it, why don't we make our own cream cheese? And it was a little bit of what do we need to make? Let's make it ourselves. You know, coffee, there's the Zingerman's Coffee Company, there's a Zingerman's Candy Company. You know, if somebody had an idea and they could come up with a business plan, they would support that idea. But that stuff didn't take off until about the time you were in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. It was right around 1992 when they started thinking we can be more than just the deli. But it took them a couple of years to decide this is the direction we want to go because Ari was actually pretty happy with what was going on. And I think Paul was itching to grow because people were copying Zingerman's. And he thought that, you know, if we let people copy us, it's not going to be us anymore. And we need to take control of that. Hmm. I also have 
come to really believe that there is a, a sort of cultural imperative that drives the decision making and the operations at uh, at Zingerman's, and that it's different from what you find in in other businesses. I mean, there are lots of successful businesses in the world, but there is something about uh, the way uh, the people at Zingerman's who who run it, who work there, who are part of that uh, entire enterprise, interact with each other and interact with the businesses that looks different. At least from the outside, uh, than, than than other places. Can you talk about how important that culture and that cultural force is to the success there? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important aspects of Zingerman's has been, you know, we call it employee involvement, but they didn't treat their employees just as people to come in and write up your order and leave at the end of a shift. They wanted to offer opportunities for people to gain education. Um, one of the reasons for that is that both Paul and Ari are just voracious readers. And Paul read a lot of business books, and they would pass them back and forth and say, can we borrow this idea? Can we borrow that idea? And it was very interesting because some of the ideas that they borrowed were from Toyota, which I recognize because I covered the auto industry for a long time, <laughs> but people might not necessarily see this. And, you know, one of them is continuous improvement, which is something that Toyota does. Another is getting input from employees. So if you go to a Toyota factory at the end of every shift, they have a 10 minute period where people can say, you know, this went wrong today. This went right today. I would tell the next shift to do X. And they adapted some of those ideas so that it wasn't just a, you know, you come in and you leave. It's you come in and we value what you have to offer. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Mickey Maynard. She's a contributing columnist for The Washington Post and author of Satisfaction Guaranteed, How Zingerman's Built a Corner Deli into a Global Food Community. We're talking about Zingerman's, a really popular deli in Ann Arbor, uh, and its success over that 40 years, how it grew from being just a deli to being this global food community with uh, a lot of tentacles and influence all over the place. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as all. As always, uh, call and tell us what you think about Zingerman's. Is it a place that you're familiar with? Uh, why do you think it's so popular? Uh, people who live in Ann Arbor or go to school there or just visit, I'll say it's one of the places you've got to stop. Uh, what do you think makes it a staple restaurant here uh, in Michigan? And also uh, give us a sense what you think about uh, businesses and restaurants in general, how they grow to this kind of success and also how they have uh, been able to weather the incredible storm of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Mickey, I do want to talk about uh, the pandemic and the effect it had on, Zimmerman, on Zingerman's and how it comes out the other side. Uh, that's that's something that I, I think other businesses uh, obviously could take a page from as well. Yeah, I feel really lucky that I had kind of a front row seat on how Zingerman's got through it, because literally the day that we met with Zingerman's, my editor at Scribner's, my agent, myself, 
to talk about cooperating for the book was March 16th, 2020, which was the day that Governor Whitmer announced the stay-at-home order for the state. Um, and immediately, Ari Weinswag had to lay off 300 people. Mm-hmm. And over the next weeks and months, it really turned on the jets in order to save the individual businesses. Because one thing that they found out was that they had some very strong businesses like mail order was exceptionally strong. And I would argue that mail order saved them during the pandemic. They had the bakehouse because the bakehouse did a lot of wholesale business, coffee. They had the deli, you know, which was obviously famous and the roadhouse, which is their sit down restaurant. But then they had these smaller companies. And for example, Zing Train, their training program had to like shut down. And that had been a $2 million a year source of revenue for them. And they had to pivot over to online training. Mm. So I think one of the thing, one of the hallmarks of the, how they got through it was instead of being super deliberative and taking their time and all that, they empowered all the businesses to come up with ideas that they thought would help. You know, so the roadhouse put picnic tables out in front. If you couldn't go inside and eat, you could still get carryout food and sit there and eat it. And the deli had only done about 8% of their business by people calling in their orders, but then they switched over to something that's probably familiar to people, this um, online ordering. And now it's something like 80% of their orders for sandwiches are placed in advance. Um, They were allowed to stay open as a grocery store pretty early. The bakehouse was allowed to stay open. So all the businesses that could be open were coming up with ideas to to, you know, help people get people in. But as I was saying, mail order was really the secret. And mail order is about 45%, almost half of their business. Hmm. And over the early months of the pandemic, people wanted bread. They wanted chocolate. (laughs) You know, they wanted coffee cake and fish. And mail order was able to sell things to people that they weren't able to find in other places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of Zingerman's, uh, the deli in Ann Arbor and the business it has grown into. Also, give me a sense of what your favorite sandwich at uh, Zingerman's might be a little later. I'm going to talk about what mine is and I'm going to ask <laughs> Mickey what hers is as well. Mickey, I, I, I do want to talk about sandwiches uh, and what what your favorite is and then I'll tell you what mine is, and I think that's one of the things that that binds us kind of all together around yeah. uh, Zingerman's is that everybody does have a favorite. So my favorite is actually a salad. <laughs> You're going <laughs> to laugh. Um, I like what's called the Z Cobb salad, and that's a play on words because Z Cobb Zingerman's community of businesses is what they call the <laughs> umbrella over the businesses, but obviously it's a Zingerman's. Cobb salad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I ate, I would say I ate that salad every two weeks for a while during the pandemic because it's a nice big hearty salad and you can get a couple of meals out of it. And then they always give you bread to go with the salad. So I have to tell you, you know, we loved having Zingerman's delivered and to see someone coming up the front steps with that yellow bag of food. I mean, there's just something reassuring about it. So I want to hear what your favorite sandwich is. So my favorite sandwich is the sandwich that I started eating when I was a first-year student at the university back in in 1988. It was the number 21 
Freiburg's Feast. Uh, back then, it was uh, applewood smoked bacon and gouda with uh, lettuce and tomato uh, and mayo on. I think it was on challah bread, but uh, there was some. There was a specific kind of bread, and I won't remember what it is. But it, it left the menu after about five or six years, and I loved that I could still go to Zingerman's and order that sandwich and tell them that number and they would still make it for me even sure. <laughs> even after yeah. it was uh, after it was going off the menu and now of course it is back uh, it's yeah. back on the menu and it's still the same number but it's got a different uh, a couple different ingredients on it but uh, but I've been consistent about that now for well I guess Oh yeah and you know years. one of the things that that I think distra- distressed a lot of people during the pandemic and with the supply chain issues is that some of people's favorites have had to disappear from the menu. I mean, for a while, they didn't have white fish salad, and for a while, roast beef disappeared. Um, but I think they're trying their best to get the menu back to what people have memorized, yeah. essentially. Um, so folks like you won't be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Mickey Maynard, uh, great job on the book about Zingerman's, and thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Great, it's a pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the political side of things and talk about the issues and focus of the Republican Party in our state as we get closer to the November elections. We're going to talk about the rightward turn that the party has taken and whether that threatens its relevancy in critical elections like these midterms. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Michigan, for many years now, has been kind of a purple state. There are bright red areas of our state outside of southeast Michigan and the other urban centers. And then there are pretty bright blue places uh, like Detroit or Lansing or Grand Rapids. But it's reddish elements, the places where conservative politics kind of take the day, are getting uh, redder and redder over time. That's partly because our parties are becoming more and more nationalized, and the Republican Party, of course, is no exception. The state party is following its voters, who mostly seem to stand with Donald Trump, and there are other issues they follow, but actual policies seem to matter less. What's driving them is where does Donald Trump stand? If you look at the slate of candidates that Republicans will have to vote on in November, I think you can see really strong evidence of this. In a year when Democrats nationally are expected to do pretty poorly because it's a midterm election and the president, who's a Democrat, is really unpopular, 
they should be poised to take many of the things that Democrats are holding in states like Michigan, the governorship, for instance. But if you look at the candidates that they have, they are so far to the right that they probably are going to have a really hard time attracting that middle kind of uh, space that candidates, especially Republican candidates, tend to dominate in Michigan. So what does that mean for the party? How much of this is just about the time that we're living in and the profound influence that Donald Trump has over the Republican Party? Or how much of it is something bigger, maybe a bigger shift that will last longer and maybe threaten the viability of the Republican Party, not just here in Michigan, but nationally? These are questions that, of course, are swirling as we get closer and closer to the November elections. And as we do that, we on Detroit Today want to have a lot of conversations about what's going on in the Republican Party, what's going on in the Democratic Party, and what voters will face when they get to the polls in November. What does all this say about our politics in general and our future? Chad Livengood is the politics editor and a columnist at the Detroit News, and he has been spending some time thinking a lot about these questions, particularly in the run-up to the midterms. He is here with us today to talk about where the Republican Party is, how it's changing, and what particular issues are driving the base. Chad, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. Also with us is Dennis Darnoy. He is a Republican political consultant who tracks voter data. Dennis, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on, Stephen. So so here's where I want to start, and it is with that big picture premise uh, about if you take a look at the slate of candidates that Republicans will be putting in front of voters in November, what does it tell us about the party? What does it tell us about the influence of Donald Trump over the party? And what does it tell us about the chances that the party can take advantage of the weakness, the strategic weakness that Democrats face just because uh, this is a midterm election? Chad, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I would start with the attorney general's race. Um, back in April, the Republicans held what's known as a an endorsement convention. Their actual nominating convention for attorney general and secretary of state and state board of education and the boards at U of M, Wayne State, and and MSU uh, is not until the, the 27th of August. But they they held this early convention. For delegates to uh, state delegates, we're talking about a, a nexus of 3,000 Republican activists to essentially um, uh, crown someone in advance, um, because they, in, in this system, both the Democratic and Republican parties do not have primaries for these uh, these statewide uh, offices below governor, mm-hmm. and so it's all dominated by. Uh, essentially, by the by the far right and far left wings, um, the very activist um, ends of the of the Republican Democratic Party, and the Republicans uh, nominated Matthew DiPerno, an attorney who kind of came to uh, um, to some powers of sorts in the Republican Party because he pursued unproven claims of voter fraud and and uh, manipulation of the votes in in tiny Antrim County. This this case got a lot of 
attention because uh, Antrim County had some kind of a glitch on election night and was posting uh, results that showed Biden winning by 20 points, whereas Trump won by 20, more than 20 points. Mm-hmm. And so Matthew DiPerno rises to power and he knocks off a former House Speaker, Tom Leonard. Um, and and so and, and DiPerno, uh, his rise to power is purely at the hands of Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump endorsed him early on and and uh, and he has become now like a Trump whisperer of sorts, uh, where you ha- if you want to get to Trump, you have to go through DiPerno uh, and a few others, including Michonne Maddock, the, the co-chair of the Republican Party. Um, and it really kind of uh, shows just how powerful Trump has become, that he can crown people in, in conventions and and make them the nominee. And if and, and doesn't matter uh, to people, at least Republicans, uh, uh, rank and file, that DiPerno is at a huge disadvantage uh, when it comes to money. He's like a guy, uh, the international, the attorney, the incumbent attorney general, has a 14 to 1 advantage in mm-hmm. money uh, on hand right now. Um, and um, but uh, and then even that, Tom Leonard, the, the former speaker who, who lost that race, he's got 3 to 1 advantage in the amount of money he has on hand compared to, uh, t- uh, compared to Matt, Matt DiPerno. And so... Um, the the Republican base is really kind of they just follow Trump uh, at every every turn now, and we saw that as evidence in the in the in the governor's race where Trump came in and endorsed Tudor Dixon on the Friday before the primary, uh, and she ended up winning by uh, nearly twenty points. Uh, it didn't matter what how much that Kevin Rinke spent ten million dollars of his own money. Um, uh, it 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 all came down to who Trump was was endorsing. And uh, and other you know just normal Republican principles and such kind of get thrown out the door um, for um, for for following who who Trump uh, uh, selects. Yeah, yeah. So Dennis uh, Darnoy, th- I think that Attorney General's race is a really interesting example of the the kind of tensions that exist around the, the influence that Trump has over the Republican Party, and of course this. This need and desire to try to win in uh, in November, but I'm I'm curious about your take on the 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 bigger context as well, not just Matt DiPerno, but also uh, Christina Car- Caramo, um, uh, some of the other candidates who who are on the ballot. What 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 can we glean from this slate about what's going on inside the Republican Party? Well, I, I think what we can see is that it really matters who controls the level of power um, at the state level uh, when it comes to interne- internal politics. Um, if you look at a state like Georgia, for example, um, Trump went all in on a bunch of candidates, um, but he was going up against the establishment there and known candidates, um, and he was very unsuccessful. If you look at a state like Michigan, where it was very much a blank slate. I mean, going into you know the last days of of the gubernatorial primary, you know, I think uh, undecided was probably the the leading candidate at that point in time. Um, and so, you know, if you if you are able to you know set up a, a pre convention, if you will, to nominate the candidates that you want, um, you are going to end up with candidates that the Republicans have, like a Matt DiPerno. Um, and so, again, it's, 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 you know, Trump's hold over the party is certainly strongest where um, 
there isn't, uh, I'd say, unified unified opposition where there is a blank slate of candidates, and his endorsement then matters. And as we we, we definitely saw that with the Dixon campaign, um, where she went from you know somewhere around fourteen percent to forty one percent, and the eventual nominee. Mm. So I, I want to talk about Trump and his influence over voters here in Michigan, as opposed. The candidates and whether it's enough to result in wins in November. Uh, this this question about running to the right in the primary, and then I suppose maybe continuing to run to the right in the general, which is a different strategy for Republicans, and it's not one that we've seen be terribly successful uh, over time. Um, but but talk about the voters who Republicans will need to win these contests in November and whether Trump has influence over them. We know he has uh, tremendous influence over the base, but but you've got to win uh, more moderate voters. You've got to win independents. Um, what, what, what are the chances that this strategy makes much sense uh, given, given the makeup of the state, Chad? Yeah, I go back to uh, the, the suburbs of Detroit, to western Wayne County, and kind of the middle swath of, of central Oakland County. This is where Democrats cleaned uh, the clots of Republicans in 2018 in the so-called pink wave, where you had Republican, mostly male, um, uh, legislators uh, lose uh, uh, seats in, in for the state Senate. Two Senate seats flipped to, to Democrats in Western Wayne County. Laura Cox, the uh, state rep at the time, she lost. She lost, um, uh, and, and wife of the former Attorney General Mike Cox, she lost a, a Senate seat in, in, uh, nor- in the northwest corner of, of Wayne County, Livonia. Uh, those that kind of Livonia to West Bloomfield. Uh, area there and, and, and further east to to, uh, to Troy, uh, Democrats uh, won a bunch of different uh, legislative seats, and and uh, and Gretchen Whitmer uh, picked up a ton of vote. And you you saw a lot of the polling data uh, out of the Seminary State Marys, and also just from talking to voters at the polls those day that day, um, there was a lot of 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 Republican women uh, who and independent women who um, made the decision because they were turned off by Trump at the time. And so that being turned off by Trump in that midterm has not really changed in this midterm. If anything, it's probably gotten worse in some some regards. Then you add in the whole issue of of abortion, uh, which Republican politicians in general, um, according to the polling that Detroit News did uh, back in, in mid-July among Republican voters, Republican politicians are not in step with their own uh, um, base on this issue. We polled just the two basic questions about whether you support abortion in cases of rape and incest, and it was 68% among Republican voters only. These are folks that, would, that were planning to vote in the primary. And then when you asked if, if you supported rape or incest for, or excuse me, abortion for rape or incest in cases of, of a minor child, a 13, 14 year old girl, um, and that, that support went up to 75%. Tudor Dixon opposes this. Uh, every Republican, uh, except for Kevin Rinke, that was on the ballot for governor, 
opposes this exception. And most most mem- most uh, of the Republican nominees for Congress and and uh, and several state legislators and leadership they oppose this as well. And on this issue, I mean, this is a, this is a vulnerability for Republicans that's sitting out there right now, and you already see it right now in the advertising. Um, right from day one, the Democratic Governors Association went uh, right the day after the primary went on air with uh, an ad about Tudor Dixon's opposition and calling, basically labeling, labeling her an extremist on 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 the issue of abortion, and and they have uh, been they've been on the air for two weeks defining her. And you haven't heard any response from uh, Tudor Dixon or uh, from the uh, Republican Party or, or the Republican Governors Association. Um, and that that is really going to be a vulnerability for uh, Tudor Dixon in the suburbs of Detroit yeah. and other suburbs, too. For that matter. And, and, you know, you, you, you're saying that, you know, both parties have issues with their more their more radical influences. But but if you look at the other side of uh, the political spectrum here in Michigan, especially, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say that Democrats are behaving in the way that you just described. For instance, Tudor Dixon taking a position that is so far out of uh, out of the mainstream, and that that seems like the the problem that they're having with this election. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer when she ran uh, four years uh, or two years ago. Um, was four years ago was able to to capture lots of what you would call moderate or conservative areas of the state because she's not terribly leftist. I mean, she's not uh, she's not part of uh, the 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 extreme wing of of the Democratic Party. I mean, this is happening on one side in a different way. Wouldn't you agree, Chan? Yeah, I mean, she won that primary, a uh, three way primary, and her chief opponent Abdul was Abdul, former- right? Yeah, former health director of the city of Detroit, he was the far left. He he was uh, the Bernie candidate uh, in that race, and uh, and uh, and and you know all for Medicare for all. Attacked her for her for for her father being the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, and uh, and and tried to take her down as you know sort of a, a pawn for the insurance industry, and. Uh, and it didn't work, mm-hmm. and uh, and she won handily, and then she uh, she uh, sort of stayed in that in that semi uh, uh, left of center lane that that, that Gretchen Wimmer kind of uh, came came of age uh, in as the minority leader in the in the uh, state senate. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about. The slate of Republican candidates who are on the ballot in November, what it means about where the party is headed, and what it means for voters. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of what the Republicans are offering this fall? Uh, are you a Republican? Are you somebody who worries about where the party is headed? Or are you enthusiastic about the candidates uh, who will be on the ballot? And you think that eventually uh, people come around to embracing this more radical version uh, of conservatism. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests right now are Chad Livengood, politics editor and a columnist at the Detroit News. Also with us is Dennis Darnoy, a Republican political consultant who tracks voter data. We're talking about the prospects for Republican candidates this fall, uh, given the slate of candidates that they have, especially for the statewide races. Uh, they are much further to the right than you would normally see from the party. Uh, they are more influenced by former President Donald Trump than perhaps uh, makes a lot of sense in a state like Michigan, which uh, rejected Donald Trump at the polls in 2020 uh, and also has rejected a lot of the candidates that he's backed uh, when there are statewide questions. Uh, the question is, is this just about right now and what's going on in the party, or is this a more significant shift in the party that threatens its viability for a much longer period of time? As always, uh, we want to hear from you what you think of the candidates, either in statewide races or in the local races that will be on your ballot in November. Uh, what do you think it tells you about the Republican Party in the state right now? Um, uh, give us a call. Let us know what you think uh, about Donald Trump's influence, apparent influence over over the Republican Party here. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter. Hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Ruby in Ferndale. Ruby, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Hey. Um, at the risk of being a, a one-trick pony, I hope that the Dems realize that um, the evening that Trump's documents were seized, Victor Orban was in Texas speaking against race mixing, and for the last couple years, the GOP has been courting and wooing this man and his, hung his example of um, autocracy. They're striving to replicate that. If we need a wave of voters, more people need to know and understand the playbook that the GOP has taken up. Uh, great point, Ruby. I'm, I'm glad you called me that. Dennis Darnoy, I'd love to hear you respond to what Ruby's talking about there. Well, um, you know, when we were talking about, uh, you know, is this a, a new phenomenon uh, within the Republican Party? And I, I think, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm sort of of the age, probably most people aren't. But, uh, you know, when you go back to the Republican National Convention in 1992 and Pat Buchanan got up there and gave a speech called his culture war right. speech. Announced and the then, culture war. Right. Absolutely. And then two years later was the Republican takeover with the contract uh, with America that was, um, you know, set up by by Newt Gingrich. Uh, so, you know, this is one of those things that has, there, it's been brewing within the Republican Party now for 30 years. Um, and, and so it is something that is going to continue to to play out. You asked a question earlier, is, you know, uh, is this a threat to their relevancy? And, and I think to, to Chad's point, um, you know, when, when the Dobbs ruling came down from the Supreme Court, it really gave Republicans an opportunity to 
uh, you know, adjust their, their policy platforms when it came to pro-life and pro-family. They had an opportunity to focus more on things like child care support and home visitation services, um, economic assistance and, and improved access to medical care. Um, but at this point in time, unfortunately, Republicans are left to defend the notion that 14-year-old girls who are raped should carry the rapist child to term. When, when you're having those arguments or those having that's that's your position, um, you really aren't part of the conversation. Um, and so, you know, right, right now, Republicans are missing an opportunity to uh, get back to being the, uh, the, the party of ideas and the party of policies. Um, and if they continue down that, I mean, it, it then becomes a, a monologue uh, in, instead of a, a dialogue with voters. And if, if you think about the ways in which that could hurt this fall in in particular, uh, Dennis, I mean, it, it's it's an incredibly lost opportunity if you read the polls, right? Uh, if, if you believe that people are as angry with President Biden as the polls say they are, or as dissatisfied with, with, with Gretchen Whitmer. Absolutely. I mean, you can have conversations about the role of government when it comes to COVID restrictions, uh, and you can argue whether or not uh, what Governor Whitmer did was beneficial to the economy. Um, but when you start getting into conspiracy theories over the makers of the vaccine or pointing fingers uh, at where it came from and, and you know, embracing, uh, you know, wild theories about you know, it being a, a biological weapon or man-made, um, you are losing opportunities. And I think Republicans very early on thought that they had a good chance to, to you know, win back the governor's mansion. And I think even, uh, you know, there was some thought that the attorney general's race was going to be a very competitive one. You know, for Republicans to be successful this cycle um, on the platform that they are currently talking about, they would have to try to replicate Donald Trump's victory in 2016, uh, where he did not win Oakland County, um, but he stole areas such as Bay County and Saginaw County. He was successful in Kent County, which has uh, changed tremendously demographically uh, since his victory in 2016. Um, they would have to you know, have large margins of victory in Livingston County, which has changed geographically. So you know, I think there are going to be those within the party that say, no, there is a, a roadmap to, to be far right and win without some of the, the suburb areas that we talk about. Um, but unfortunately, I think the demographics have changed over those six years, um, and they aren't speaking to the issues that, that affect those people. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Ben in Waterford. Ben, walk, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've been paying attention to politics for a long time now, and it's just been interesting to see the primaries recently, specifically Kansas and Wyoming, with Liz Cheney losing, but uh, the, the abortion rights being upheld in Kansas. Mm-hmm. If you if you look at the margins of victory, it it's pretty pretty staggering in in those. I mean, Kansas and Wyoming are staunchly Republican states, and recently with with Liz Cheney's loss, I mean, twenty five percent of Republicans voted against uh, their guy. I mean, voted against Donald Trump in a place where, I mean, it's staunchly Republican. I don't sure. think it's the victory that they think it is. Yeah, uh, Ben, I, I 
really appreciate you bringing up those uh, those examples from those other states, and they they do they do point out how uh, you know how, how out of step this stuff is with uh, with voters, and 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 in Wyoming in particular, I think how dangerous uh, the party and its candidates. Uh, are making themselves uh, out to be. I mean, this candidate who beat Liz Cheney has said some really, really outrageous things uh, about not just politics and policy, but but about Democratic politicians. And it looks like uh, she's going to be headed to, to Congress. Uh, Chad, I wonder what your reaction is to what Ben's talking about here. Yeah, I mean, t- to the point about the staunchly, re- staunchly Republican voters of Kansas uh, rejecting uh, an effort to take away all any uh, any uh, right to abortion um, in that in the Detroit News WDIV poll from last last uh, month, we were polled the Republican voters when, when 75 percent of them said they support uh, a minor child getting uh, an abortion in cases of rape or incest. Just 16 percent uh, said that that they they oppose that. So just just to extrapolate that 16 percent of Republican voters think a 14 year old girl should should carry her rapist uh, ch- uh, child to, to term. Um, and and that's that's what the, the, um, the majority of Republican politicians right now on the ballot this fall are um, endorsing or backing the 16 percent. Um, and that is just that is just seems like a recipe for disaster uh, for Republicans uh, going into the into these into these elections because again they're going to be a messaging uh, that is going to target and specifically target uh, Republican women and um, and independent women um, and and when we look at the polling on that it, I mean it's, it gets worse for for Republicans uh, and so. Uh, I would not discount the, the power of the Republican women in this in this election to 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 decide uh, decide a lot of races up and down the ballot. Yeah. That's why Republicans are trying to trying to desperately trying to keep this abortion amendment off the ballot that would enshrine abortion rights uh, in our state constitution uh, and essentially take the legislature out of this equation. Because right now we've gone back to this. 1931 law that uh, banned all forms of abortion except in the cases of of, uh, of saving the life of the mother. This law, we, we did the research on this. This law dates back to the 1840s, uh, about 90, about uh, uh, 80 years before women had a right to vote in this in this state. Um, and so I, I would really uh, sort of watch this issue closely uh, as the election uh, uh, nears, and really as the absentee ballots hit the, hit the, uh, go out in the mail the third week in September, that's when that's when we're going to really start seeing a lot of of, uh, of uh, advertising uh, in your mailboxes and and on your television screens aimed aimed at this this specific issue. Yeah. Um, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Uh, Dennis, I wonder if you can talk a little about that uh, abortion uh, referendum question that could be on the ballot here in Michigan, and also some of the other issues that that uh, that again could could hurt uh, Republicans uh, at the at the polls. The things that will be on people's minds that uh, they're on the wrong side of. Well, sure. And, and uh, just to, to clarify, the 
um, the issue in Kansas was um, actually taking something out of the Constitution. Uh, here in Michigan, we would be adding, um, you know, abortion rights to the Constitution. So th there, that is a huge difference when it comes to to the motivation of voters. Um, and and so I, I think you know while the the turnout among Republican voters and those who supported uh, the Kansas initiative is is impressive, and I think it does send a message um, that slight difference between taking away and adding is is incredibly important and I think Chad you know said something um, that you know certainly tweaked my ears and I'm sure among uh, you know state senators who are of the Republican ilk um, obviously took notice too and that is if the top of the ticket is so out of touch with the voters of uh, Michigan, there is a trickle down effect. And, um, you know, Democrats have to be looking at the state Senate, a chamber that they haven't won uh, in in a very long time mm -hmm. and, and, and seeing an opportunity there. And so if all of a sudden uh, Republican voters are either uh, dissuaded from going to the polls because they can't support the candidates or, <clears throat> excuse me, or, you know, or just turned off, um, that can have a significant impact on who is governing Michigan for uh, for a good while and obviously the four years. The one ballot initiative um, that will be interesting to see is the term limits one. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is something that uh, Republican voters can can get behind. I think that's an initiative that, um, you know, Republican candidates can can promote. But obviously it is in this post-Dobbs world, the abortion um, initiative that is going to draw the most attention. And, and, and it will draw pro-life voters out. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, pro-choice voters who are going to come, but pro-life voters are very excited about the opportunity to, you know, express their 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 opinion on that issue. Um, but at the end of the day, I, again, I think Chad was spot on when he said if the top of the ticket is going to suffer and, and, and they are catering to 16 percent of a Republican primary electorate, uh, that could have significant Im impact on how Michigan's governed. Yeah. Okay, Chad Livengood and Dennis Darnoy, it was great to have both of you here uh, to talk about this. We will, of course, be revisiting this uh, this issue and all of these races a bunch before November. Uh, I want to get both of you quickly to make some predictions about what we see in November. We've got about a minute left. Chad, go ahead. Oh, Stephen, I got other predictions business. <laughs> you won't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I mean my 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 you know earlier points still stand. Uh, if 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 some of these critical issues like abortion, Republicans don't find a way to 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 get their views uh, closer to what their own voters are. Uh, that the general electorate is going to reject them and 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 uh, up and down the ballot on several fronts. Yeah, uh, Dennis. I'm going to say it's a statewide sweep for the Democrats at the top of the ticket. The abortion initiative passes. Uh, state House goes Democrat. And I'm going to say the state Senate stays in the hands of Republicans mm. or it's tied. Wow. OK, uh, well, we will uh, check back in again before we get to November. And of course, we'll all be talking about it after the election. Thanks again for being here, guys. Thank you. Thanks. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to be talking about a new book that explores how people assist each other and fill in the gaps when government resources are not around to help. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>